Hey, sustainable self developers. Now I'm just kidding. I'm not actually calling my listeners that way. But hey, guys, Abel here, back with the so awaited second part of this ad libitum diet or intuitive eating episode where I talk about all or at least most of the good stuff you need to know about eating and manipulating your body composition without macro tracking. And in the first part of this episode, I laid down all the groundwork for all of this and talked about the pros and cons of ad libitum eating as opposed to macro tracking, talked about all the types of populations and the types of goals that intuitive eating is applicable for, and told my personal story and history with all of this and why I personally stopped tracking my macros and bark on a more intuitive or rather body signal or hunger and satiety based style of eating. And in this episode, I will talk about all the technicalities and how you can make an intuitive eating style serve you with your different goals, whether it's cutting, weight maintenance, or gaining. So I guess um, let's just dive right in. Uh, I will go pretty fast because there is a lot to cover. So I advise you to use the timestamps if you're curious about any particular concepts specifically. And I also advise you to pay close attention because this is a bit less huggy, love each other type of podcast and a bit more technical in nature, but it won't be too bad. Um, so perhaps a good way to start all of this would be to provide some overall structure to all of this and kind of introduce what I'll be talking about here. And basically, I will be giving you a little bit of a table of contents in the beginning. So if that all sounds good, I will start with that. So first of all, when talking about the different components of intuitive eating, we can name a couple of key factors that make up the totality of a successful body composition oriented eating strategy. And the way these components interact and take effect is actually pretty similar to how Eric Helms layered and structured his nutritional pyramid. And if you're not familiar with it, then Google it, just type into Google Eric Helms pyramid, and it will come up. And if you don't want to Google it, then um, shame on you, but <laughs> but uh, it will become clear in a second, so don't worry. So without further ado, the three big elements or determining components of what will happen to your caloric intake and thereby body composition in descending order of importance are number one, food choices. So the types of foods you choose are the bottom layer, the most important layer of this hypothetical intuitive eating nutritional pyramid. So if I had to put a number on it, I would say that selecting the right foods is at least 70% of this entire game, but it's probably even more important than that. Second thing is diet structure. And these would be things like meal frequency, meal timing, the distribution of your calories across the day. And this is also important and it will account for a much smaller variation in results, probably anywhere from 10 to 20%. And then the and then the third component is psychological tools and tricks. And these would be things like mindfulness, the availability of foods, manipulating the size of your plates and cutlery. And this is kind of the icing of the cake. So this will account for anywhere between 5 and 10% in the variation of your results. And then arching over these three components is satiety and diet satisfaction manipulation. So basically everything that we do here is in the hopes of manipulating these two variables. So for example, you may be wondering where do something like hydration come into play? 
And the answer is these kinds of things all fall under the umbrella of manipulating satiety and overall satisfaction with your diet. And these things can come into the picture at various points. So it can become relevant at food choices, but also at something like psychological tricks or diet structure. Now, the last thing that I want to tell you about this hypothetical pyramid before we actually dive into the actual details is that how important these different layers of the pyramid become is actually mainly a function of the ambitiousness of your body composition goals. And realistically, I'm mainly speaking about how lean you want to be. So for example, if you are a guy who just wants to be at a healthy, reasonably athletic body fat percentage of around 15-ish percent, or maybe even are okay with going a little bit higher than that, then you can basically just focus on food choices and make sure that most of the foods that you eat are nutritious, satiating foods. And you can pretty much ignore all the rest. And you can just implement some of the other layers or the components of the other layers to your own liking. Now, if you want to be very lean, so 10% or less as a guy, then the upper layers of this pyramid become more and more important. And simply selecting satiating foods may not cut it. And paying attention to a relatively structured meal schedule and meal frequency, implementing more mindfulness as you eat, become more and more of a requirement rather than an option. Also, note that over the course of this entire discussion, there will be a slight bias towards the perspective of a person who is on a fat loss phase. I'll touch on considerations for muscle building as well, but fat loss will get a general priority as most people's main concern when they are looking up content or nutrition seems to be fat loss more so than gaining weight. So this was just a quick overview of what we are going to talk about here. And with that, let's focus on the bottom layer of this pyramid first. So let's talk about food choices. Um, the reason why this is the bottom most important layer of this intuitive eating pyramid is because from all the things that can have an impact on hunger and satiety mechanisms, the foods themselves have the biggest impact. You could mess up all the other layers pretty badly, but if your food choices are in order, then you could still be quite effectively progressing towards your goals. For example, you could have a terrible diet structure with the most suboptimal meal frequency, meal schedule, and calorie distribution. You could have all kinds of messed up behaviors around your meals. But if you only eat chicken and broccoli, to give a stupid example, you would be more than likely to still lose fat. Conversely, you could have excellently scheduled meals with the absolute most optimal meal frequency. Your calories could be distributed across the day in the most optimal way possible. You could be eating incredibly mindfully, so your mindfulness levels could only be paralleled by Buddhist monks or something. But if your diet is consisting mainly of cheese-filled pizza dough and waffles dipped in Nutella, then I would still not be super confident that you will not overeat. So for that reason, food choices are absolute key. Now, from a body composition standpoint, the number one factor that will, you will want to monitor is the so-called satiety index of your diet and the foods you eat. So the website nutritiondata.com lists how filling certain foods are when compared to one another. So you can just Google nutrition data fullness factor and 
The rating that they provide is generally pretty good, although it's not always accurate in my experience. But I think the best thing is to simply understand what determines how filling a given food is. So the main determinants of the satiety-inducing effect of any given food are food volume to caloric ratio, viscosity, palatability, and then to some extent also protein and fiber. So uh, let's talk about these individually. Food volume to caloric ratio. Uh, simply put, it basically just refers to the sheer quantity or mass of food that you get to eat for a given amount of calories. So you can look at something like a plate of raw chopped up cucumbers, which a pound or half a kilo of it might contain something like 50 or 60 calories. Or you can look at something like almonds, which are a super nutritious whole food, but 100 grams of it or something like two handfuls contain 600 calories. So 10 times the amount as cucumbers. And certainly anybody who has sat down in front of the TV with a bag of nuts in their hands can attest to the notion that you can polish down some absurd amounts of calories pretty quickly that way. And there is in fact evidence of this that people when they are left on their own devices, they tend to eat a relatively constant mass of or quantity of food. And they tend to not deviate from that so much, regardless of how many calories the food they eat contains. So this suggests that for the feeling of satiation and fullness after a meal, the most important thing is that the food contains enough volume or weight for your given needs and preferences. And we actually have good reasons to believe this, as it's been shown, it's very well established actually at this point, that one of, it's not the only, but one of the important mechanisms through which the brain actually senses that you're getting full is through the stretching of your stomach. And this is pretty cool because what this means is that you can basically be just as satisfied, at least temporarily, by eating a much lower calorie amount if you eat a sufficient quantity of food. And on a related note here, you can make use of this stomach stretching-based satiety mechanism by consuming water or some other zero-calorie beverage, especially right before your meals and even during your meals. So if you're dieting, a good habit to get into is to have one or two glasses of water or other zero-calorie beverage before you start eating and maybe another one or two glasses during your meal. And this way your stomach will get filled up nicely and you will get a feeling of satiety without actually consuming as much calories as you otherwise would. And so on this theme further, if you think about it, you could engineer a 3,000 calorie diet, which consists of olive oil, table sugar, and whey protein, to give just a stupid example. And chances are that you would still be hungry at the end of the day, because the total quantity of food you would be eating would be very little. Or on the other hand, you could engineer an 1800 calorie diet, which is much lower in calories, of course, which consists almost exclusively out of lean protein and green veggies. And you could find yourself in a situation where you would have a hard time stuffing down that much food. So bottom line, eating a sufficient quantity of food volume is key. And as a general rule of thumb, you want to eat each meal to the point when you feel like you don't really want the next bite because it would just make you feel a bit uncomfortably stuffed. And you could also call this as a feeling of comfortable fullness. Next thing I want to cover quickly is viscosity. It basically refers to the density or thickness of the food. So generally, the more viscous a food is, 
the more satiating it is. And this mainly comes into play with liquid-like food items that you can either drink or eat with a spoon. So as you probably have noticed, sugary sodas are not satiating at all. And then fruit juices with some fruit pulp in them have some very little impact on satiety. And, and then if you put together some thick smoothie, then it may actually be pretty satiating. And you can also notice the same thing with dairy products or different soups and stews. So basically, this is just one more reason to minimize liquid calories generally, especially on a diet. With that, uh, let's move on to the next key factor, which is food palatability. So palatability is basically just referring to the tastiness of the food. And it's hardly news for anyone, but it unfortunately inversely correlates with satiety. So in general, the better a given food tastes, the more you'll want to eat of it. So the obvious extreme examples here are, once again, the foods that we generally think of as treats or junk foods. One of the main reasons why these foods are so overeating promoting is because they are just so damn yummy that we tend to keep eating them past our point of satiation. Besides the fact that these foods are, of course, incredibly calorie-dense. This also helps explaining why sugar, for example, in a practical sense is problematic because it increases calorie density and palatability at the same time. And what I mean by that is when you add some zero-calorie sweetener to some food, for example, then you will add more then you will eat more of it because you just increased palatability. You made the food tastier, but at least you didn't increase the energy density of the food because the sweetener was zero calories or, or at least close to it. But on the other hand, if you add sugar to a plain food, you increase the palatability, which again drives up caloric intake, and you increase the energy density of the food. So any given bite of food that you eat will now contain more calories and it will increase your desire to go for the next bite as well. So it's kind of a double whammy in terms of calorie increase. And it, of course, gets even worse when you add butters, oils, cream, etc. So bottom line, if we eat ad libitum, we need to be mindful of the palatability factor of our overall diet. Now, Whole, unprocessed, single-ingredient foods tend to not have this effect, but still there are still differences between different foods. Some of them are naturally sweeter, some of them have a more a pleasing mouthfeel to them, and depending on how deep you are into a diet, you may want to watch out for those. One example that comes to mind, for example, is bananas as opposed to apples, which both contain roughly the same amount of calories, but apples are generally considered to be a lot more satiating, partially because of this palatability factor. Next big factors, protein and fiber. Protein is generally viewed as the most satiating macronutrient, and that is probably valid. Traditionally, bodybuilders have always loaded up on tons of protein, how much of an impact that has on their satiety compared to other macronutrients, it's hard to tell because these bodybuilders also load up on tons of fibrous veggies, so they might swear by the satiating effects of protein as the factor that got them through the diet, whereas in reality it might have been the ton of fiber that they consumed. In fact, I've been introduced to this concept called protein leverage theory during the Bayesian personal trainer course, which basically stipulates that evolutionarily it makes sense for your body to make you hungry for a given amount of protein that is sufficient to provide your body with its needs. And if you eat less than that, then you'll stay hungry. But if you keep consuming more than that, then it's no longer more satiating. 
And I think simply practically speaking, in general, for the management of hunger and satiety, it's worth loading up more on things like fruits and vegetables as they are generally less caloric than protein sources. So you can eat a small piece of chicken breast for 100 or 150 calories, or you can eat a pound of green veggies for that amount at least. Uh, This brings up fiber. Fiber not only contributes to the volume of the food, but soluble fiber also gets fermented into short-chain fatty acids in the gut, which triggers satiety in between meals. So in general, fibrous foods, which in practice mean fruit, vegetables, deserve a big thumbs up. My general rule of thumb with fiber on a diet is to consume the most amount you can without causing yourself gastrointestinal distress. And it's good to get into the habit of having fiber just like protein with every single meal. So putting everything together so far in terms of food choices, things that matter the most are food volume, viscosity and palatability, and then on a related point fiber and then probably to a lesser extent protein. And if you were to engineer the lowest calorie diet you can without tracking macros, you would put together a meal plan that consists of foods that taste pretty bland and has very low calorie, high fiber, high protein foods that provide a lot of volume and fill your stomach up. So you're less likely to put down a ton of calories in the first place, but then even the taste is pretty forgettable. So you don't even have the urge to do so. So that would be one end of the spectrum. And then if someone aspires to do a 10,000 calorie challenge or something, then just select a whole bunch of really tasty foods that provide a lot of calories for very little food volume and contain very little fiber and protein. And you'll probably get impressively far in that 10,000 calorie challenge without counting anything. And then there are, of course, more sane approaches in between. So ideally, you don't want to cut long term on super bland foods exclusively. But for short term goals, it can be rather useful. And you, of course, don't want to do a 10,000 calorie bulking diet ideally either. Now, as I said, food choices form the foundation of all of this. That is the one thing that needs to be taken care of ahead of anything else. But there are other factors too that influence your ad libitum energy intake. And with that, we arrive to the second layer of this pyramid, which is diet structure. So diet structure basically refers to how you organize your meals and food within your meals in a general sense. And there we can talk about a lot of things, but the most important things I want to mention here are, for one, meal frequency, two, meal timing, and three, flavor variety in your meals and in your diet in general. So let's start with meal frequency. In a very general sense, meal frequency, and this is also true for meal timing, by the way, is best viewed as a vehicle for adherence. So you can get largely similar results on a vastly different meal frequencies. Now, from the limited amount of research that we have, it seems like from a body composition and especially muscle building or at least muscle mass retaining perspective, it's best to have at least three meals a day. And then having four, maybe even five is even better. I think that for a long-term diet management perspective, especially if you do not track your macros, for most people, three or four meals works best. And here's why. 
Having less than three meals a day means that you will go long periods of time during the day without food, which can build up appetite a bit too excessively, at least in a psychological sense. So it can increase food preoccupation a bit too much, and it can be tough to control your appetite once you actually get to your meal. It doesn't have to be that way, but I would say that I see an increasing trend in that direction with the people who try that kind of thing. And I I have experienced the same thing with myself too. On the other hand, more than four meals a day can just lead to inconveniently small or low-calorie meals, which can be tricky to engineer, especially if you don't track your macros, which increases the chances of either your calories going up if you're not careful or your meals being not satisfying enough individually. Now, once again, these are general trends that I've seen and are not set in stone. If having only two or having more than four to five or six meals a day is convenient for you to manage things, then that's great. But in general, I think three or four meals is a great way to distribute your food across the day. And it works conveniently with all kinds of schedules. You can even make intermittent fasting type of protocols work well with them. It also suits all kinds of food preferences. So for example, four meals a day tends to work better if you eat lower calorie foods and will be likely to get hungry a little bit more frequently. And three meals a day works great if you have larger, denser meals. So that's why the general recommendations for three or four meals a day. There's also something to be said here for regularity of of your meals. So it seems that just like most systems in your body, most biological systems, hunger and appetite management mechanisms also have a certain rhythmicity to them. And the times that you normally eat is generally the time when your body programs itself to become hungry. So it's advisable in a general sense to be somewhat structured with the timing of your meals and try to have them more or less at the same time. Now, this does not have to mean that you have a stopwatch going off every day at noon when you have to have your lunch, but just try to find a reasonable meal schedule that works well with your lifestyle for the most part. And for most people, this is not that difficult. Most people have at least some structure in their life that is instituted by their workplace or their school, and you can synchronize your meal schedule with these things pretty smoothly. If you are a college student and your schedule is all over the place, like mine was in college, then just know that the most important boxes that you want to tick off when it comes to meal timing is to have generally square meals for the most part. Don't just randomly snack on things. Try to not have huge variations for day-to-day in the number of meals you have. So don't have only two meals on one day and have six on the next. And then the closer you can get to having your meals more or less at the same time every day, the better. But if on one day you have three meals and on the other day you have four meals, it's not a huge deal. Or if on one day you have your first meal at 10 a.m. and on the other day you have it at noon or 1 1 p.m. because you were not hungry, not a huge deal either. The important thing is to make yourself non-susceptible for having random hunger attacks at completely random times during the day because you're being completely random about your diet. Okay, next thing on the theme of diet structure is flavor variety. So what's important to understand is that appetite and satiety mechanisms are sensory specific. Stefan Guiené wrote about this in his book, The Hungry Brain. Brian Wensink wrote about this in his book, Mindless Eating. 
Mario Tomic did a cool video on this and uh, talked about it on my podcast too. You can look up Mario Tomic Trick Your Brain and it will come up on YouTube. This is a huge and unbelievably interesting topic, but for the sake of brevity, I'll try to be concise. In short, the moral of the story is that there is always room for dessert. (laughs) And the reason why there's always room for dessert is because you don't just have an appetite. You basically have five appetites for all the different tastes that exists in the foods and drinks we consume. So you have basically a separate hunger and satiety mechanism for salty foods, a separate one for for sweet foods, for sour and for bitter foods, for unami foods. So when you get full from a given meal, it's not so much the case that your stomach got filled up, although it's also the case, but it's more so that your desire to consume that specific food flavor got satisfied. And when a different taste get introduced into the mixture, you all of a sudden feel like you could keep eating a lot more. And anecdotally, I think most people can attest to the fact that this effect is the strongest when you introduce sweet tastes following savory ones of any kind. So this effect might still take place when you eat bitter foods following salty ones or sour foods following bitter ones. But if you eat sweet flavors after any kind of non-sweet food, especially salty food, then it can, in a sense, reset your appetite a little bit. So what this means is, is that depending on how much you want to control your food intake, this might be something you want to take into account. If you want to drop really fast, for example, then it might be worth to forego your fruits and sweetened low-fat yogurt after your chicken salad, and instead just take a deep breath, have a glass of water, pop in a piece of chewing gum, and wait with the sweet food until your next meal. But if you're at maintenance or bulking or you are just fine with losing fat at a nice and slow pace, then don't stress over having some nice dessert after your main meal. Also, note that how big of a problem this is going to be if you end your meal with something sweet is still proportional to the amount of calories you have at the end of that meal as a whole. So if you have some berries, for example, with cocoa powder and sweetener, which is one of my personal favorites, you may add one or 200 calories to your meal at the end of it tops. So it's not like you're following up a giant pasta dish with some vanilla ice cream and chocolate sauce. But if you want to have a super low calorie day, for example, with a protein sparing modified fast, then flavor variety is something you might want to take into account. I also want to point out that I would never recommend reducing flavor variety over the course of the entire day. So even if in a few meals you stick to only one flavor to keep your caloric intake in check, over the course of the day, don't try to strictly confine yourself to consuming only salty foods, for example, because that is just needlessly rigid and it can reduce overall diet satisfaction. Okay, and with that, we actually arrive to the third layer of this ad libitum diet pyramid, which is psychological tools and habits. So here we can talk about a few things, and we will talk about things like plate size and cutlery size, mindfulness, just overall behavior around eating, and also your outlook on things. So this is another fascinating subject, and I guess a good intro for this part is that the way your appetite and satiety works is not just through your stomach getting filled up. I mean, that is obviously a key component, but there is a lot more to the story. Basically, your brain monitors a variety of factors. When you ate the last time, what your last meal contained, how that made you feel, 
how much food you have available for your next meal, how tasty is that food and how high it is in calories, and then how that food looks, how it smells, how it tastes. So based on all these factors, your brain basically sends you certain signals of hunger, satiety, and satisfaction. And this is where psychology definitely comes into play and why it should not be overlooked. Now, when looking at the research on psychology and ad libitum food intake and all the interesting experiments that have been done on this, the common theme for me that seems to emerge again and again is awareness. The more aware you are of the actual food you're eating and of the actual act of eating itself, the more satisfying each bite and each meal becomes and the less calories you will need to feel satisfied. To give one example... Small plate sizes have been shown in experiments to spontaneously reduce energy intake. And there are several explanations for this. But if you just think about it, putting your food on a small plate makes the food more apparent. And you just become a lot more aware of the actual amounts that you're consuming. If you put it on a giant plate, it kind of just makes it look insignificant. And you might be more likely to just blow right through it. And there are other more well-documented explanations for why small plate sizes, for example, correlate with lower calorie intakes. But when we look at the different psychological tools that will come handy for us, you will notice the same emerging pattern that awareness generally contributes to lower caloric intakes. But since I already started with this, uh, let's actually get into this psychological trick, uh, which is modifying your plate size. So the first thing you should know about this is that people in general, tend to eat the amount of food that's on their plate. And there are even some figures on it in research, something like 92% or something. But people generally just assess how much food is available for them, and they adjust their appetite to that amount. One of the most fascinating experiments here is the never-ending soup bowl experiment that Brian Wensing wrote about. You can just Google bottomless soup bowl and you will find videos and articles on it. But basically what they did is they secretly refilled people's soup bowls through a tube. So basically what happened is that these people this way depleted their soup bowls much more slowly. And by doing this, they made people eat spontaneously 72% more even though when later asked, they thought that they didn't eat any more than other people did. So this right away shows you that it's not just about how full your stomach is. Because if it was just about that, then the people who ate a lot more soup would have thought that they did in fact eat a lot more, but they didn't. Similar experiments were done with M&Ms, with bags of popcorn in movie theaters, and the conclusion is always the same, that Bigger plates and bigger portion sizes generally correlate with more food consumed. And one explanation of this is the size-contrast illusion, where your brain assesses the size of something in relation to something else. So the same bite of food could seem much bigger or smaller, depending on how big the plate is that you put it onto. There is also probably just a lot of human instinct and habit that goes into this. It's just instinctive to fill up your plate according to how much available space there is on it. And it just became a habit throughout our upbringing to eat the amount of food that's on our plate. Uh, As we were kids, a lot of us frequently pushed the plate away. But as we've been told repeatedly by our parents and nannies in kindergarten that we should finish our meals, it became more and more of an ingrained habit. Plus, as we grew up and became responsible for cleaning our own dishes, by the time we reached our teenage years, 
for most of us, it was just no question that we would rather get stuffed and bloated, but we will finish what food is on our plate. Now, does this mean that you should just pick the smallest plate possible? No, in fact, doing so is probably suboptimal beyond a certain point. If you have super tiny plates of food, you'll probably just fill up your plate that much more frequently. But what this does mean is that A, ideally don't eat your food straight from the bag, pour it on an actual plate, and B, ideally, especially if you want to lose fat, just pick a reasonably sized plate and pour as much food on it as you think is going to reasonably satisfy you. You can always go back for more, but doing this will probably result in you being just as satisfied with much less food. There are also some cool experiments indicating that the color contrast you have with your food and your plate has an impact. So if you have the opportunity, put your food on place that has a strongly contrasting color with your food and additionally ensure that you can actually see your food well so don't eat again if you have the chance to play with this in dim lighting probably once again this matters because it makes you more aware of the food that you've you're actually eating so general recommendations here try eating in a way that you may have only did the last time when you were a kid serve your food and don't eat straight from the bag and especially if you're dieting, try serving your food onto smaller plates. Oh, and by the way, don't go crazy with this. So if you're in a restaurant, don't send back your plates so that you can get a smaller one. Use this tool whenever it's convenient. Okay, next point, which is one of my recent favorites, is mindfulness. And mindfulness in this context refers specifically to how much you're paying attention to the act of eating. And the reason why this is a major thing is because, once again, a series of experiments have shown that people, when they are distracted, will eat more. And not only that, but some experiments even indicated that people actually eat more in subsequent meals. So it looks like whenever you are distracted, be it your TV, a YouTube video, a podcast, or someone just talking to you, you will eat more calories in that meal, and you may even consume more calories in subsequent meals. And one potential mechanism behind this is that you simply become less aware of the amount of food you're consuming once again. So again, your brain registers how well you're being fed based on a variety of sensory inputs. And if you're being distracted by other things, it's basically able to receive less of these signals. So what you want to do to avoid this is just don't turn on your TV while you're eating. Don't mess with your smartphone. Stop the podcast you're listening to. If you've been listening to this podcast while you're eating, stop this podcast now and focus on your actual food when you're eating. Now, I don't want to be a hypocrite and I want to acknowledge the fact that this is way easier said than done. Because let's face it, eating while watching or listening to something you enjoy is awesome. In fact, it is one of my favorite things to do is listening to something interesting or educational and eat something tasty meal in the meantime. And it was very hard for me to let go of this in initially and I actually tried doing it multiple times and quote-unquote relapsed into distracted eating again and again before I actually committed to a more mindful approach. But here is what I can pretty much promise you. It is actually worth it. So yes, listening to a podcast or catching up on your YouTube subscriptions while you're eating your post-workout meal is awesome. But here's what happened to me when I cut all of that stuff out and started to focus on my meal as I was eating it. For one, I was a lot more quickly satiated and actually got very nicely satisfied before I actually got stuffed. 
I touched on this in the previous episode, but one of the big benefits I noticed when I switched to an ad libitum eating strategy was a great improvement in my gut functioning and that I had less bloating and things of that nature. While earlier when I was tracking macros and I was being completely distracted by other things as I was eating, because again, when you track your macros, you can get away with these things just fine. I thought that being super bloated and stuffed after every meal was completely normal. And it's actually kind of funny and sad at the same time that after my meals, it always just kind of hit me in the face that, damn it, I did it again. Because I was so distracted during eating that I didn't even notice that I was getting uncomfortably stuffed as I was eating. And now when I'm paying attention to my meals, it's really easy to notice the point where the next bite of food would actually make me feel uncomfortable. Someone commented one time on Facebook somewhere that I like tracking my macros. I can't even imagine how stressful it must be to ask yourself after every bite if you're still hungry. And I can totally understand where this person is coming from because after eating by the numbers for a long time, it's actually pretty tough to get back in touch with your normal body signals. But there's actually nothing magical about it whatsoever. It's a matter of letting your body do what it knows best, which is giving you the right signals. All you have to do is getting out of its way to do so a little bit. And this brings me to the second point that by eating mindfully, actually paying attention to the food, enjoying the taste, the textures, and really trying to experience how it makes you feel, there's just an amazing clarity of mind after my meals. Earlier, after I had a huge meal, oftentimes the feeling I got after finishing the meal was akin to waking up from a dream or coming out of some loud disco club or something like that, where I was feeling like having lost touch with reality almost, which sounds super silly and exaggerated, but that's exactly how it really was. It took me a good hour after my meal to actually get back into life and especially productivity mode. And thirdly, all the things that I just mentioned about more satiety and satisfaction after your meals that research indicates is actually totally true. There's just no other way of saying it. I can tell you that I just feel fuller, quicker from less food, and I feel full and satiated longer after my meals. It just simply works. And fourthly, I also mentioned this in the previous episode, is that being able to stay present and having your thoughts fixated periodically on one thing at a time is just an incredible skill that you will benefit from in virtually all situations. Your work productivity will improve, your conversational skills will improve, how you experience joyful events will improve. If you tend to overthink and overanalyze things, that will probably improve. I mean, there's a reason why meditation is so popular to the point of it almost becoming a fad in personal development and entrepreneurial circles, because the ability of clearing your head of needless, excessive thinking is just an incredible skill that is becoming harder and harder to cultivate in the fast-paced environment that we live in. Funny thing is, is that I actually relapsed, quote unquote, relapsed uh, into listening to podcasts while I was eating. I kind of just thought that, well, I now have such good habits and skills surrounding this stuff that now I can just afford this. But a lot of the negatives that I experienced before came back so quickly that I quickly decided that, nah, I'll just go back to mindfulness and I'm loving it once more. So the podcasts remain for me for the times when I'm commuting or I'm at the gym. Now, I want to know that there are degrees to all of this and it all moves on a spectrum. So 
paying attention to your food and to the act of eating almost in a meditative sense is probably the best and unbeatable then still paying attention to your food for the most part or at least looking at it but kind of daydreaming in the meanwhile is a little more distracted but it's still pretty mindful compared to what the average person is doing and then even when you're distracted, there are degrees to it. So listening to a podcast is probably less distracting than actually watching a video. And watching a video is definitely less distracting than actively web surfing while you're eating. So that would be mindfulness. And now I would like to touch on a few other things. In general, try to create a nice clean environment where you're eating There's some evidence showing that chaotic, messy environments just tend to be correlated with overeating. If we want to go real deep, it could make sense that an environment like that signals to you that you're not in control of things. Um, What I found true for my case for sure is that when I create a giant mess when eating, oftentimes I just keep eating out of pure procrastination so that I don't need to get up and clean all that stuff up. Um, Another thing, be smart with shopping. I always kind of tend to assume that this is self-evident, but it's really not. Uh, Just don't buy foods that you don't think are conducive to your goals. If you have culprit foods that you tend to go overboard with, don't keep them around the house. If you have a food that you have a hard time having self-control with, don't feel bad or don't feel like you're a failure as a person. A lot of people have something like that. It's part of being a human and it's especially uh, a part of being a human in the 21st century. But be aware of it and don't buy those foods. I myself, I don't keep nuts, nut butters or even oatmeal in the house. It doesn't mean that I don't eat those things at all or that they are on the ban list. But I plan for the bad times and I just don't have them around at an arm's reach. Another thing that sort of belongs here is eating speed. Whether eating slowly really helps, it's hard to tell. There's conflicting research on this. I would say that if you're eating mindfully, it probably doesn't matter much. But based on my experience, I would say that if you're prone to compulsive eating when you get hungry or especially hangry and just sit down and shove down a huge amount of food, where at the end of it, you're just like, oh my God, what did I do? And feel totally stuffed and grossed out. If you can force yourself to slow down a bit in these situations, that will obviously help to prevent this. A good way to do this is to have some water every once in a while during your meal as you're eating, for example. Uh, Also, probably the more calorically dense the food is, the more it matters if you eat slow or fast. If you eat something like almonds, for example, you can, if you want, just polish off a handful within 10 seconds and feel like you didn't even eat anything, even though it was a fair amount of calories right there, because almonds are just so caloric. Whereas if you ate them slowly, piece by piece, you might actually feel like you've eaten something by the end of it. Whereas um, if we're talking about something like broccoli or cucumbers, they are just so freaking filling that it probably doesn't matter that much because either way, they are just going to fill your stomach up. So I think we pretty much got to the end of all this as far as basic concepts. And now I'd like to take the final segment of this episode to actually help you put everything together and get started with all of this. First of all, let's summarize what we've learned about food choices, diet structure, and psychological tools. And to make this illustrative, If you were to draw the types of diets that you can construct based on the principles that we went over here on a spectrum that ranges from 
a super low calorie protein sparing modify fast or rapid fat loss type of diet on the one end to a super high calorie recipe for obesity type of diet on the other hand, then basically they would take place on a spectrum like this. On the one end, you would have a nutritional plan that consists of super satiating, low calorie, high volume foods that are not very palatable and tasty. You would make use of the extra satiety you can get during your meals by having some water or other zero calorie beverage before and during your meal. You would eat three or four meals a day. Have You would have little flavor variety in any given meal. You would eat from small plates that have strongly contrasting colors to your food. You would eat mindfully and focus strongly on your food. And this would probably ensure the lowest possible calorie diet that you can put together without actively tracking things. If you want to drop a ton of fat in a short amount of time, then that's the kind of plan you would construct for yourself. On the other hand, to get to the other extreme, if you want to put together a 10,000 calorie challenge without actually tracking all those 10,000 calories, then here's what you would do. Select a shitload of high calorie, low volume foods that are super tasty, eat them at completely random times during the day, have a lot of variety of flavors and textures in all of your meals, put them on giant big plates or eat them straight from the package preferably and just make sure that they are in the vicinity at all times. Also be sure to be pretty distracted while you're eating them. So just snack on them during working, during watching movies and stuff like that. That is actually a pretty killer recipe for an incredibly high calorie intake. Now, of course, in general, we don't live our lives on the extremes, so the characteristics of our diets will fall somewhere in between these. So you will have some higher calorie foods, some lower calorie foods, some blender, some tastier ones. You'll play around with different meal schedules and meal timing protocols. You might go through periods when you eat super mindfully, and at other times it might be just too convenient for you to eat while you're watching your favorite series to give up on it, and over time, you'll tweak all these things depending on your goals and progress. Now, before I actually give you some practical recommendations on how you start out with all of this, the first thing you should know is that quitting macro tracking doesn't have to be a permanent thing, so you don't need to be terrified that now you're giving up something that may have given you stability for the rest of your life. You can always go back to tracking if you want. It also doesn't need to be a complete 180. It doesn't have to be a complete on and off switch. You can use hybrid approaches where you track protein and then you don't track anything else. You can occasionally zero in on any one parameter of your diet that you're concerned about. So for example, if you're concerned that you're chronically undereating fat to the point that you're now on an unreasonably low fat diet giving your body size, then you can track that occasionally. You can also do things like checking yourself the next day initially when you're starting out with this. So for example, you eat ad libitum all day, but the next day you do a recall of all the foods you've eaten and add them up to see what you actually ate. And then you can do a mini analysis of what was off if your calorie intake was too high or low. You can also mix things up where some part of your diet is fixed and tracked and the other part is not. So for example, maybe you're living with your family and you're having meals together and you're not going to track that part of your diet, but you have one or two meals every day, 
that you have complete control over. So you're going to track that. So in short, there are many ways of doing this. It doesn't have to be a scary leap of faith, which I know that for some of you guys, it might seem that way. So finally, practical recommendations on how to start. A mental construct that I like to use to tailor my calorie intake to my goals without actually tracking my calories is what I came to call make yourself fundamentally cravy for certain foods. And here's what I mean by that. The types of foods that you desire to eat are actually a fairly good proxy for your overall energy balance. So if you're on a super low calorie diet, then if someone offers you some salted cucumbers and canned plain tuna, you'll probably jump on the opportunity and be glad to eat it because you're hungry and you just want to eat. Now, if you're more well-fed, then cucumbers and canned tuna are probably not very appealing and someone would have to offer something more tasty for you to actually be excited about it. And if you're in a chronic caloric surplus, you may get to the point where someone would have to offer you something pretty intense in taste to actually make you motivated in eating it. So the types of food you want to eat are a pretty good indication of where you are calorie intake wise. So when I want to lose weight fast, my mindset is, okay, I'm going to make sure that the thought of low calorie, high fiber, high protein, pretty low palatability foods is appealing to me. As I transition into maintenance and then lean gaining, I'm a lot more flexible and my mindset is, okay, as long as I'm eating things like fruits, eggs, fatty fish, avocados, and things like that, and these foods are actually appealing to me at all times and I'm looking forward to eating them, I'm on the right track. So to illustrate this, if I was to start now on a cut, for example, what I would do is think about the way my nutrition would roughly look like on a proper cutting plan and what foods I would include. And the answer is I would include lots of veggies, lots of lean protein. I would include fruits and I would go a bit easier on the higher sugar fruits. Uh, it would contain some eggs, some fatty meats and fish. It would contain some dairy, but I would go for the lower fat options and let's say I would not eat isolated fat sources in the forms form of nuts, dark chocolate, and things of that nature because they don't fill me up and they add up a lot of calories pretty fast. And based on this, I would start putting together meals that, uh, according to what I just discussed, would contain large amounts of veggies. Most would contain some lean protein, but at least one or two meals a day would contain some full fat options. I would have some berries with most of my meals and maybe some whole fruits, higher in calories in one or two meals, and I would see what happens. And if fat loss is not happening, which is unlikely because these foods should be satiating enough to result in a calorie deficit if they are just eaten to satiety, um, but if fat loss is not happening after one or two meals, then I would maybe remove some of the higher sugar fruits and replace those with berries, or instead of two glasses of water with each meal, I would start drinking four to get that nice stomach expansion feeling sooner into my meal with less calories. Or over time, I would start really paying attention to really focus on my food while I'm eating so that I get the most amount of satisfaction out of every meal with the least amount of calories consumed. And over time, if I feel like I really need to start pushing things, I would make a point of consuming only one flavor in any given meal. I think 
this is something that is only really necessary when you really start pushing things and get to really lean levels. Now, another thing I want to point out is that when you start out, depending on your personality and your preferences, you can either use a slowly easing in type of approach, such as the one that I just discussed, where you add in these layers of advanced strategies as needed, or you can use a shotgun approach where you open the floodgates onto yourself and try all of the strategies at once to really get shit done. I think both can have their applications at certain times. I, for example, a while ago did use a shotgun approach where I basically did all of the things I talked about in this episode. So my food choices were really low calorie for the most part. I was eating super mindfully. I was using small plates and small cutlery. I had a few glasses of water with each meal. And not surprisingly, I lost something like 5 or 6% body fat very quickly. In fact, quicker than I would recommend for most people. Another very important thing is I think that Taking into consideration the intricacies of human psychology, whenever you are trying to make adjustments or reductions in your calorie intake without actually tracking it, always try to think in terms of adding or replacing things as opposed to reducing things. So if you want to make your calorie intake lower, don't think in terms of I'm going to eat less food in each meal or I'll make sure that I'm a little bit hungry at the, at the end of each meal. If you want to play around with that stuff, that's fine. But I think for long-term sustainability, you should be able to eat each meal to the point where you are nicely, comfortably full, and the next bite of food would actually make you feel stuffed and uncomfortable. I think this should be very possible at all times, unless you want to be in contest shape. So this should always be the aim. The thing that you should modify is the types of foods that you eat to achieve this point. So, so for example, if you eat full-fat dairy and some sliced bananas, then by the time you get to the point where you don't want to consume more food because you're nicely full, you will have consumed more calories than if you're doing the same thing while eating low-fat dairy with berries that contain something like half the calories compared to sliced bananas. So, Always think in replacement and addition. What can you replace in your diet with something leaner, something less calorific, so that your overall calorie intake will be lower? And speaking of addition, maybe you're only consuming green veggies in one of your meals. Try consuming them in all of them. And be sure that you start with those and your lean protein source at every meal before you move on to the rest of your meal. Or maybe you only had a glass of water before your meal. Now try to have one glass before and one during your meals. Another common concern is flexibility with food choices when you use this kind of an approach. We all know that if you follow an if it fits your macros type of approach, then you can essentially fit all kinds of junk shit into your food and still get to great body composition results. And... As I discussed in this episode, food choices are probably the most important component of this whole thing if you eat ad libitum. I would say that we need to use some common sense here. The rules of flexibility in terms of food choices are pretty much the same as when you do track your macros and you use a more intelligent, flexible dieting approach. So the more reasonable, intelligent approach to flexible dieting is having maybe anywhere from 5 to maybe 20% of your diet coming from quote-unquote discretionary calories. And the bulk of it is actually coming from nutritious foods. So in a real-life scenario, for most people, this will mean having a 200 to maybe 600 calorie treat a day. 
that is actually some more nutrient-devoid junky stuff. And if you think about it, what fulfills this criteria in a real-life setting, it would be some kind of a single-serving item. So maybe something like a small ice cream stick or a small chocolate bar, like a Snickers bar or something. And the rules are pretty much the same if you eat ad libitum. Is it fine to have a Snickers bar while you're eating ad libitum and still lose fat? Yes, probably it is. Will it work out if you just intuitively snack out of a bag of lint truffles or potato chips? Almost certainly not. So really, diet flexibility is still something you can enjoy. You just need to be somewhat reasonable with it. Another thing, kind of as a philosophical approach to this whole thing, is that there is a time and a place for everything, I think. And there might be times when you are super on point with everything. And there might be times when you are just experimenting with how much you can get away with. So I recently experimented, like I said, with returning to eating while watching stuff on my laptop because I was curious how it will work out. And like I said, I dished it once again because I found that eating mindfully still wins for me. But you might find something else. So um, guys, I think that was pretty much it couple of shout outs that I'd like to give to the end of this. I've learned a ton on this topic from Menno Henselmans's Bayesian PT course when we learned about the topic of ad libitum dieting. I would also recommend Mario Tomic's Trick Your Brain to Eat Less video series and you can check out the podcast we did on this topic. If you search for Mario Tomic Sustainable Cell Development, it will come up, but I will also link to it in the show notes. I would also recommend Brian Wensing's book Mindless Eating. And uh, those are the resources that come to mind right away. And at this point, I'm not affiliated with any of these resources that I mentioned. Um, So I just recommend them because I do think that they're good. The last thing I want to say is that I'm sure that a lot of you will have questions on this. So I would suggest you to comment under this episode on YouTube or on SoundCloud or on Facebook or wherever you came across this link and jot down your questions you may have on this. And in the future, if enough questions come together on this, I will do a Q&A episode on this. I love this topic, so I am more than happy to answer questions you might have, so ask away. And now I am sufficiently sick of my own voice. So for now, see you all in the next episode. Ida ciao.